0: Gary, I appreciate you uh, joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me. So I want to start our conversation uh, with your transition because your original background was graphic design and now you're working with high level (laughs) CEOs across the country and helping people develop major companies. So how did that pivot happen in your life of you going from a graphic designer into somebody running a company?
1: Yeah, so uh, my whole career path has been I planned and God laughed. That's <laughs> that's the way I look <laughs> at it. Um, I was brought in uh, and targeted actually by a business development uh, guru out of Richmond, Virginia, uh, that had been with the Martin Agency, Stuart Sanders, and um, he was working with the guy that became my partner, and he was in financial uh, very bad place okay. know, basically he could have gone bankrupt at that point it was, it was that dire and uh, so the formula was find a hot hot shot give him uh, equity in the company turn it around and go and I had no experience in turning around a company okay. whatsoever um, but the reason that they had targeted me was I um, I, I had a good design reputation, but I was also uh, able to build relationships with our clients, which were oftentimes CEOs, mm-hmm. or the heads of marketing of a uh, Cessna Aircraft or somebody like that. I was a relationship building guy, not just a designer, right. and so that was kind of the formula, and so that's what brought me in, and uh, within nine months, we ended up turning this company uh, by just doing basic blocking and tackling, treating people right, doing what you say you're going to do, and then a little bit more, and uh, really trying to serve versus be served. Right. Yep. So, so you touched on
0: developing relationships, and I want to continue on with kind of your story, but before that, yeah, that's a theme with your whole background, right? And, yeah. and they chose you for that. That's been something that has come to you, and you've seen value in it. Yeah. is there something in your life in your background that kind of clicked for you as far as hey relationship building networking whatever it is is important or was that
1: just a kind of a natural transition for you um you know i just find myself uh fascinated with people um You know, I come from the middle of nowhere in Kansas, where, you know, uh, and uh, where I was growing up on my, uh, in the summers, helping my grandfather farm. And it's a very lonely existence on a tractor, you know? And I realized I don't want to do that. And I didn't know anything about temperaments or anything like that, but I knew (laughs) I just didn't want to be lonely on a tractor. Um, And because I think I come from such an unremarkable, Part of the world, and even our our family was nothing, you know, special. We love I love my mom and dad and my sister and all that, but um, I found everybody else to be a lot more fascinating. Okay, so I think that was part of the thing, and I just wanted to learn. And then as time went on, I think one of my good friends says, "Out of our greatest pain becomes our greatest ministry to other people." And I think that's true. And I think some of that even betrayal in relationships has made it even more of an important thing to honor relationships. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that's great. So
0: you get into this business with a partner and yeah. and you run that for how long
1: before you make your next transition? Uh, so my plan was, uh, we're gonna run this forever okay. because it was a company called the Morris Fry Agency and had my name on the door. Um, and we had some really cool clients like British Aerospace and we were doing work with a hotel, uh, developer and stuff like that. We had such variety that was fun and we had renovated an old chili factory in the heart of Wichita, It's called Old Town. Okay. It was a ton of fun, um, but three years later I discovered some financial improprieties and, um... Talked with my partner about it. Found out that things were gonna change and then I found those again. And so my choice was what am I gonna do? And I, I didn't wanna hurt him. I didn't wanna hurt my name because uh, I had built this company and I loved all the people that worked for us. Mm-hmm. And so um, the choice was uh, start all over. And that's what brought us to Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. Yeah, in nineteen ninety four.
0: All right, and and then shortly yeah. after being in in Charlotte, you uh, started working at Bank of America, and you had a, a pivotal moment in your
1: your yeah. business career. Then, um, can you tell us that story? Yeah, so um, I think the best leader I've ever worked under is um, one of the top female executive ex- executives still at the bank, and this was under Hugh McCall's Era of uh, leadership as CEO. And um, I wrote about this actually on LinkedIn, and we had uh, that was uh, a, a post that went viral and had about 8 million people. Wide, or read this 1,300 character post, right. <laughs> um, but I'll never forget that day and that moment, and it was a one-hour conversation with my boss, and basically it started with, uh, she shut the door in her office and she said, Gary, welcome to Nations Bank, you know, we're so glad to have you, and um, she had a reputation for being tough, but really fair, really bright, mm-hmm. and a leader, uh, and a proponent of her people and so she said hey here's what we stand for do the right thing teamwork and trust and have a passion for winning in that order and she gave me an explanation of what that really meant and she said my job Gary is to make sure that Hugh McCall knows who you are and she made good on that and she said when you build your team um, basically all communications we're going to be running through me and my team into the Midwest. We had just acquired Boatman's Bank Chairs, which was an 11-state region. Um, and she said, when you build your team, she said, my job, your job is to make sure I know who your stars are. Just like her job is just, to know. Exactly. place for you to know so who you are. So she's modeling the behavior. Yeah. And she is expecting me. And she set the guidelines, and here's the measures of success. And she said, make sure that you hire your hire your replacement, never be afraid to be the dumbest person in the room. That was never a problem. <laughs> but she set the example, I mean, she was a Duke MBA. I mean, she's really bright, but was never pretentious, never above, and she would always ask these really great questions. And, and so she said, you know, that's, that's what we expect. And then she gave me also some nuances about Nations Bank and some things about Mr. McCall and She said, you know, he will walk the halls. He loves to be among the troops. And so don't be surprised if you see him and if he asks you a question. And if you don't know the answer, don't fake it, you know. And always raise your hand. Like, there will always be problems. Raise your hand early if you made a mistake. Our job is to help kind of keep you out of the ditches. But just own it fast. And, like, think about that. That is so powerful, and so I've really tried to um, maintain that. And, and even the power of core values, I really learned that at, at Nations Bank. And some people may not have had the same experience that I did, but man, I loved it. I called us the polite Marines. I mean, we hired and fired based on those core values. We were expected to do that, and we we wanted to run through brick walls. They They hired people that... Fit the uh, you know that fit that model mm-hmm. and that uh, embodied those things. So for me, it was an un- unbelievable experience, yeah. and we we worked hard, we ran hard. Um, we I learned about the difference between consensus and uh, getting commitment. You know, when we would have a meeting, uh, and as we were growing, I mean, you think about it, we went from eighty thousand employees to one hundred and sixty thousand in two years. That's yeah. Tremendous growth, yep. and that's a lot of stress on management as you're, you're going through that. And my boss would often say, Gary, um, go home. Be with your family. Because the work was just overwhelming. I mean, I just couldn't see digging out. And she said, don't lose your family. You know, this place will never recognize the fact that you're gone. You know, it will never even say thank you but don't lose your family in the process. I mean, things like that, which were amazing. Um, but we wanted to win for each other, <clears throat> and uh, we actually enjoyed one another. And, and, and it crossed political ideologies. We, didn't, we weren't concerned about those things. We were, we were concerned about having each other's back and, and making a difference, which it was a, it was a great experience for me. How do you think such a large
0: company, even at 80,000, right, being a major company, was able to maintain that type of culture where people could feel okay of going home and, and spending time with family and prioritizing what's most important to them? It
1: really comes down to the leaders. I mean, you know, people don't leave companies, they leave bosses. right. And my boss, the, the amazing thing is, is she didn't necessarily embody. She worked crazy hours, and I felt like I needed to do that um, because the, there was just so much work. Right. Um, but the fact that she was kept prodding me and pushing me and basically shoving me out the door <laughs> um, was a blessing, you know. And so even though I worked. lot of hours i would still be home for my kids soccer games and then i put them to bed and with my wife but then i would work late again just to try to keep keep up um but i think it, it still comes down to management always sets the tone and it starts at the very top of the organization if that's a priority for the ceo it will become priorities further down, or they will be ushered out. If you truly hire and fire based on those things, if they are just words on a, a plaque or if they're just words on the website somewhere, they don't mean anything and they actually create cynics, I think.
0: Yep. Well, and that's why I ask, because it's easy to put together a nice mission statement or value statement, but to truly get so many people to believe
1: and buy into that type of culture is unique. It's a, it's a big deal. I was with a, um, at, at a seminar, I guess, uh, where a CEO um, and his coach, who's been with him for the last six years, um, was talking about core values in, in particular. And, and the amazing thing is this, they were talking about the scaling up of this company. So this company will finish 100, at 110 million this year. Um, in 2012 they were 11 million okay well that's tremendous growth and I think they were 44 million the year before and from 11 to 44 that was all organic growth and and this year is uh, through some acquisition but somebody had asked the CEO well what do you credit that and he gave credit to his coach and other things that he was doing but he said um, he said, "Really, the culture and the the embodiment and the cultivating of core values was what he would credit that to." And he said, "I'll admit, I was the biggest kind of cynic early on." He said, "My coach, our coach, was pushing him and his business partner, and they were laughing at about some of their core values or something like, because they they kind of saw this fluffy kumbaya." Okay, right? and the coach. He's, he's pretty matter-of-fact Jack kind of a guy, and he said, as you go, so does the company, and either you get on board with this and this becomes you, you know, important because it will be a differentiator for you because this guy, this CEO, very much a family guy that is a family business, Okay, um, culture was, you could just see he, he embodied a lot of good things. You, yeah. know, you, you would want to work for this guy. And he said, that was a turning point. And he said, I would absolutely say that has been mission critical and probably the most important thing for their success. Because what happens is when you cultivate it, the tribe starts weeding out themselves because they want to have people that work with them, that become friends, that they care about. And that's what I saw at Nations Bank and Bank of America because yeah, McCall was a Marine. Um, leave no man behind, right? Right. And and we wanted to win for each other. It was it was a sense of purpose that was greater than ourselves. Yeah. No, that's incredible. So,
0: in your early career, you are picking up, uh, developing relationships, starting to work with leaders. Then you pick up culture and value. So you're you're picking up all these skills along the way. Yeah. And I want to keep going. Through your story, but I want to jump ahead to yeah. you working with with leaders and CEOs. Yeah, um, picking up these different abilities, how how has that helped you then convey to other mm-hmm. leaders of how to implement that? Because it's easy to talk about it, yeah. And you get like you said that one CEO that he was a family guy who came to him. That's who he was naturally, but yeah. How do you? take everything you've learned and find a way to help these other people that
1: may not be in that same spot, help them implement that and have success. Yeah, that's a good great question. Um, I would say that early on at that first turnaround at 28, yep. this guy uh, was a consultant and a coach. And he was not inexpensive, he was 10 grand a day. plus. First class airfare and good accommodations, and coming to Wichita, Kansas. So, it's expensive, yeah. you know, and um, and it hurt when we wrote those checks. I mean, when we're coming out of basically insolvency, and you know, it was initially a hail mary move. Right. <laughs> then it became what what I learned from Stuart in particular was he became kind of our secret weapon, and he was in it, he was very expensive at the same. It, I found myself going. Are we going to buy a computer workstation, which was like a Mac Quadra at that time for one of my guys was 12 grand. Or am I going to bring in Stuart, right, and for a day. But what I found was Stuart always gave us a great return on our investment. Within months, we would see multiple fold of, of, of what that investment was. And it wasn't because he was giving us, you know, this amazing, you know, enlightenment. But he gave us courage and conviction and uh, a couple degree nuance from where we thought we were going to go. But we had confidence that we could do this. Right. And we wanted to, and we won for each other. So that was kind of an early stage. Yeah, you experienced it before you delivered it. Exactly, exactly. And so um, one of our clients says it's hard to read the label when you're inside the jar. And it's so true, we get in our own little mind blender of all this stuff that's, we have emotions, what-if scenarios, and we just need somebody on the outside that's not in the torrent of the blender to be able to go, time out. You know, I'm seeing this, what about this, what about that? So I've seen the ability of that, And, and having run four companies, done a couple turnarounds, um, when you're the CEO, you're the president of a company, it's very lonely. Especially, um, even if you're running a publicly traded company, which I haven't done, I've worked for some yeah. of those guys. Um, it's a very lonely place, and you, pe- people go, well, Why would it be lonely? You got the cat, you know, you got the world by the tail. Not necessarily, because You can't go to your board and like really let your hair down on everything. Well, why? Because I don't want to show weakness. I know guys that have been thrown out of their own companies that their father started because their board, he he let down his hair too much with his board and then they ousted him. Yeah. Like that's a scary place. If you let your hair down too much to your own management team, when things get rough, and things do get rough, you don't want them to bail on you, right. and you don't want them to sh- shoulder the, the burdens of that. And then if you do it with your spouse, there's only so so much that they can take. Yeah. I liken it to, you know, my wife has been in the passenger side and passenger seat as we're careening down a mountain right. with no brakes, and I'm driving, <laughs> and I'm terrified, but at least I got the wheel. She's just along for the ride, and she's yeah. still in the same... So what are you going to do? And I, so I believe, whether you're using a coach or you've got mastermind groups, I'm in four different mastermind groups. Why? Because I learned something from each one of these guys, right? So I think we need to be able to get out, get outside of our head. But I think because of the things I've experienced, I've experienced some really amazing wins, and I've experienced some crushing blows and I think if I can help somebody else you know and I'm working with a fair amount of guys that are younger than me that haven't necessarily seen some of the same things that I've seen that I can at least provide perspective and the other thing that I would say is we offer a framework that is actually proven we we don't um, cookie cutter and make somebody go through a mass uh, you know assembly line this is how we do it there are programs that that are very formulaic like that. Um, But a lot of these things and things that we use from Rockefeller's habits as he was scaling his companies, these are um, kind of bonehead simple, but oftentimes the bonehead simple are the things that are missed. I mean, you know, look at um, Vince Lombardi. Every year he'd start and say, gentlemen, this is a football. He would go back to the basics. And yet he was an amazing coach. I think because a lot of times we want to move on past the basics and we want to do advanced stuff, but if we fail to do the basic things, like treat people with respect, do what you say you're going to do and a little bit more, honor your commitments, those kind of things, it's not sexy, but that's the stuff that makes the difference.
0: Right. That's not the fun stuff. The fun stuff is, is putting a whiteboard up and coming up with these cool ideas and unique strategies. Right. Right none of that matters if you don't have the foundation
1: yeah and if you can't implement if you don't have a good team right. that that is working well together so we do a lot of stuff with Lencioni's five dysfunctions of a team you know and mm-hmm. how do we build uh you know vulnerable trust you know with one another and build it through to where you're actually making the the needle move together um that's that's winning for me okay winning together yeah so yep not being an eye, on an island
0: but having people to share it with yeah
1: and there are people that do that really well well I'm it's different personalities guys, right
0: yep, yep absolutely yeah. so you use the analogy of of going down the the curvy mountain <laughs> with your wife and so i want to now backtrack to uh an experience that you had um after nations bank after bank of america yeah. um that took you and your whole family for for a
1: ride, to say the least. So can you go into that and share that with us a little bit? Yeah, so um, I had invested in a private equity firm in 2004, and I I really loved it. And one of the reasons that I did that is I was approached by the founder and at the time the guy that would become the CEO of it. And having been through some betrayals in my past life, um, I I just felt like I was alone, you know, in some of those things. And I found out, oh gosh, there are other men and women that have been through similar things. And just to be able to be part of a group like that was kind of meaningful. So that's what attracted me. And then as they were acquiring, they were getting ready to acquire a number of other companies. So basically behaving like a multi-family office to 300 ultra high net worth families and one of the things that I had been pounding on the table I was on their advisory board and I said and I knew that the founder was very guarded about this list of people that were in the group okay so and everybody to come in the group there was a significant investment that had to be made and so that yeah there were financial hurdles but the most important things that for him was you know high integrity low ego willingness to help other people with no strings those kind of things uh, because that's how we kind of mitigated our risk and it was a beautiful model I mean and the people that were attracted to this were amazing but they were looking to start acquiring um uh, broker dealers, uh, insurance strategy firms, etc., that served these ultra high net worth families. And I said, Man, you've got to be really, really careful about acquiring in, in the acquisitions because what I had seen living through a lot of acquisitions and three huge acquisitions at Bank of America right. was. It appeared to me that cultural compatibility was never part of the due diligence on the front end, Correct. but it was the first thing that created a problem after the deal was done. First thing. Okay. And, um, and I had even done work with Daimler Chrysler years later in 2000, uh, yeah, 2000, 2001 when I was doing work with them and I was like, wow, the culture differences between Chrysler and Mercedes and Daimler Benz amazingly different. Right. And I thought at that time, well, I guess you get so big, you just slam these things together and it's just gonna work. Well, years later, it blew apart and, and there are case studies on it and it had everything to do with culture to So I just said, Listen, you gotta be really careful on on that. And they said, Well, would you come and help us and be part of that too? Because there, there were some guys in uh, Florida that had kind of made a business on cultural compatibility assessments, so I was okay. paying attention to what they were doing. Yeah. So we started doing
0: that well, as we and, were acquiring. And before we even finished the acquiring on that, um, when you were with Bank of America or Nations... Yeah, um, Nations Bank First. Yep. Bank right, Nations Bank First. And that Midwest acquisition that you were talking about, they first push you on there because you had a communications background, yeah, right, yeah. but then you you quickly discovered that it wasn't a communication issue that was the issue with the
1: acquisition, it was the culture issue. Yeah, it, it, that's exactly right. Actually, um, because I was a communication guy and I had run ad agencies, they're like, hey we think it's an advertising message right. thing and they said go out into the Midwest, go, you come back and tell us what you think we should be doing differently. So I went out and met with frontline tellers, business bankers, regional execs, market presidents, etc., throughout the Midwest. And I came back, and what was interesting, so we had spent tons of money on advertising that said, had a nice picture of the New Nations Bank sign that was going to be replacing the Boatman signs, and it said the sign of more good things to come. And what that meant was, I came back and said to my boss, here's the deal. Yeah, there's a communication problem, but there's more than that. What that means is we just jacked up their fees. We just dropped their rates of return. Susie the teller is afraid she's going to lose her job. And Mabel is really afraid of that because Mabel has had Susie for the last five years as a teller. And Bob the business banker feels like all his loan decision-making authority has just been shipped to Charlotte, which it had because we were, they were a very decentralized bank and we were a very centralized bank. Okay. And so they're like, keep your good things. So I said, yeah, there's a communication issue, but I said, Helen, the bigger thing is, is the culture is really thick in Charlotte. Like I knew from my first day with her what we stood for. Yeah. But what I found was the further you got away from Charlotte, even though we had some Loyal soldiers who had worked for McCall that were had been placed out into the Midwest. The message wasn't really getting down to the front line that, man, you're really empowered to do the right thing. I mean, you think about that. That statement alone, do the right thing, you can have feet thick of standard operating procedures right. that you can completely shove aside. If you just ask this question, what's the right thing to do? Yeah. You know, in in the light of morality, in light of the law, etc., you're given tremendous freedom and responsibility with that one alone. Yeah. And so I said, they they don't under they don't understand that. And I she said, well, what do you think we should do? And I said, I think we ought to take a page from what the Ritz Carlton does. They have an amazing training program, yeah. and they have these credo cards. That they they do stand ups every day with their people, and they go through various parts of their credo card. I said, actually, I know that we've got our core values. We've got our customer experience defined because Helen was actually one of the architects of that. We knew what our mission was. We knew the kind of brand promise that we had. Mm -hmm. But they were on different decks all over the the company. And I said, what I think we ought to do is we ought to put those things together like a little wallet card, but only if it's used as a dialogue facilitation tool the way that you did it with me, only you didn't even use a card, you just had it in your your head. But if we use that as a one-on-one conversation, Mm -hmm. I think it'll make a difference. But if we don't do it that way, let's do not print these cards, because it'll be worse. It'll just create more cynics, more like, oh, marketing crap from Charlotte. And and that was part of um, a, a turnaround that, that the numbers moved faster than what they thought they were going to, which was amazing. It wasn't just that, but I think having that dialogue and understanding where people understand, hey, they're empowered. Mm-hmm. And then we started having a few people getting cr- crystal hand grenades out in the Midwest. There was one guy in particular, so the, the lore bubbles up to McCall. Day one, switch from, you know, you're switching all the land, the logos and the brands and that yep. sort of thing, Right. There's a snowstorm, and evidently a FedEx truck can't deliver the stuff or whatever. I don't remember. So one of, one of the guys that would have been, you know, my stage or below ends up renting a, a truck and drives through this snowstorm to deliver. So may, everything is delivered on day one. yep Well, he, he didn't have the authority to go rent that truck. He did it on his own, and. You know, he, he wasn't an SVP. He was—I don't even know if he was an AVP. I don't know. But the story of that guy and what he did made it all the way up to the chairman. Yeah. He got a he got a crystal hanger, then, which <laughs> is really cool. he answered the question of
0: what is the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so yeah. So I know I took you off on a tangent. But, no, but that's but great. That background. Now you're fast forwarding and you're advising on acquisitions. And you've got that experience that you can yeah. relay so yeah. so yeah let's jump back into that because going through different acquisitions obviously we have business owners that are listening and they go through acquisitions so yeah. I just wanted to highlight that story
1: before we kept going because I thought it was important yeah so um, that's a huge passion of mine because it doesn't take that much what, what we ended up doing is we facilitated we would do a day and a half facilitation between yeah, we, you, the CEO is always going to do whatever the CEO wants to do. The numbers, you know, they, they see a market gap, they see whatever. But my, my point to our CEO um, and other leaders on our team was, let's just make sure we know what we're getting into. And we've got a very high risk tolerance. Uh, uh, we had a low risk tolerance, but we had a high risk factor if we bring in the wrong group because the people that we served were owned Major League Baseball teams. They, they Some of them were very notable and they were all wealthy. Yep. They're all targets. They can't trust anybody for good reason. Yep. Everybody's always trying to pick their pockets. So I'm like, we have to be really careful about who we align ourselves right, with. Right, because you can't disrupt the dynamics
0: that are already there, right. because that's a big part of the attraction of what you guys were doing. Exactly.
1: Right? We'll destroy our own company by the wrong acquisition. Yeah. You can have the numbers work, but you bring the wrong people that are mercenaries or whatever, not treating people the way that we would want to treat people, it'll blow the whole thing. Yep. So that was the deal. So what we would do is we get the management teams of both companies together, and I would facilitate what, what's a hun- the first 100 days look like, and get down to the nitty gritty of, okay, so we got duplicate roles. Who's gonna take this role? From this team and what, what's going to happen to you yeah i mean those are hard questions right we had to do it at, at the bank every time we had an acquisition we always had multiples of people that were doing our job and right. somebody sorts through well what are you going to do well that's what we did with the management team and then we would do a thumbs up thumbs down vote at the end of the day and a half and and when we subjected ourselves to that the acquisitions were amazing but at le- and you're still going to have challenges because it's like joining a family you're not used to well hey we, we always cut this end of, of the ham off you know well <laughs> we never do that does it really matter but you're going to deal with some of that but if you understand the heartbeat and you've clarified here are the roles and this is how we do things mm-hmm. it minimizes a lot of that stuff
0: yeah yeah.
1: No, that's, that makes a,
0: a ton of sense so, so now we keep moving forward and and let's talk about what you're doing now of actually working with CEOs, executives, helping with growth, helping yeah. with team leadership. Um, when you were 28 and you first experienced bringing this guy in, <laughs> which is very similar to the type of impact you're having now, did yeah. something click back then of that you
1: wanted to do what he was doing or... Mm-hmm. Or did you just develop that later I, on? I hadn't really thought about that. Because okay. really, honestly, I thought I'm gonna run this company yeah, true. forever. Right. That that was always my plan. Um, well, and then, then even in the private equity firm, I'm like, man, this is my home. I'm gonna be with this forever. Yeah. Well, it blew up, you know, in oh uh, nine. so you have to learn to redirect, you know, and you have to figure out well, what am I gonna do? And I always I Early on, especially after um, that first turnaround and just the betrayal and some of the things that we went through, I started putting together what I call a thrive and wither list. All right. So, um, and I've had to redirect my career along the way. I mean, you know, um, and so rather than saying, well, I'm a this, because if I just said, well, I'm a graphic designer, that was decades ago. Yeah. yeah but i started putting down things that make me thrive what okay. are the kind of situations even environments i knew actually i wanted to live in a prettier part of the country that had trees and hills we didn't have either of those in kansas right <laughs> and blue skies and i wanted some proximity to warmer climates rather than colder climates i wanted to be able to be go go to the ocean if we wanted to and it just happened that an opportunity opened up in Charlotte, which is what brought us here, but even the kind of environments, you know, do I like more task oriented things or do I like more people oriented things? Do I like big picture things or do I like just executing things? And then I also put down and as I've gotten older, I've been in so many, I've been in two Fortune 100 companies, so that's really different than a turnaround, you know, where you've got a few people. I started looking at what are the kind of things that, maybe I'm even proficient at, but they make me wither. They take away my energy, you okay. know? Um, and I put together my thrive and wither list. And then I look at opportunities and say, do I have more in my thrive column or do I have more in my wither column? Because you might be able to be good at something, but if it takes energy away, you're, you're in, an, in an adaptive state rather than in your natural state. And we can all do that. So I think especially going back to you know this friend saying out of our greatest pain becomes our greatest ministry, those shipwreck moments and those times of feeling isolated and and um, those are the things that compel me to want to help somebody else avoid those, if at all possible. Okay. Yeah. And um and just being able to bring an outside perspective and some a framework that actually works and helping that CEO not only get out of his own head and his own you know mind blender, but working with their executive team because you got to build a strong team if you really if the CEO wants to be able to work on the business versus in the the weeds of the business, they've got to be able to have a good solid core team around them that they can start moving things that maybe they were very proficient at, but maybe not their best and highest use. I mean, look at, go back to McCall again. He was very involved in a lot of um, the inner workings. Like, he was very interested in what happens to our frontline customers, what happens to the the tellers, what happens to the business bankers. He was very interested in that, but he wasn't doing it all. He had Ken Lewis, he had other guys around him that were really good and be, that he could take off and say, you guys do that. But he, it didn't mean that he wasn't interested. He just wasn't micromanaging it and right. he wasn't doing it all. Well, there's a difference between the micromanaging and having a pulse on a situation. Exactly. And those are the two extremes, really. Yeah. Right. Pulse uh, or, or not having a pulse. Right. Yeah. Like just abdicating it and where you're going and doing, you know, your around the world trips and whatever, <laughs> golf junkets to micromanaging that's not scalable you know what i love doing is finding out how do we grow but grow exponentially so it's scaling so that 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 ceo can actually have more fun he has a he or she has a good team around him where they start operating in their sweet spots and their thrive versus their wither spaces and when you start you're an athlete you know what it's like when you have teams that function all together yeah Dang, that's fun. Yep. That's really what's fun. So that's that's really become my my passion. I've I've been tried to I've had clients that have tried to hire me to work for them on the inside full-time. And both my wife and I have said, "You know, I I want to help a number of those guys not just one." Yeah. Um because I think I want at the end of the day, I I want to work with ripple makers. I got to work under one of the best, at least in Charlotte, Mm Hugh McCall. I mean, he was a ripple maker. That skyline has his fingerprints all over it in Charlotte. And it's not just because of one man, but it's because he had a goal. He's like, I remember him saying, I want to build a a place. I want Charlotte to be a world-class city where it's a good place to raise a family and grow a business. And it's become that. Yeah, it really has. It's really become that. And it's like, those are the kind of guys that I want to work with. And I'm not going to work with a Fortune 10 CEO right now. I've worked with some big ones, some international ones, but the ones that I really like working with are these middle market ones. Yeah, That, uh, that thrive and weather uh, practice is something
0: that everybody watching and listening should steal. That's a, that's a really good it's practice. It's so
1: simple. Most of the stuff that we do is so simple. Oh, yeah. It but doesn't need just, to be complicated. Right. That's what, that way we can imp- actually implement it yep. and you can sit down in an evening and think about it right well and, and you had touched on the the energy
0: that things take too and if you're not if it's not making you thrive and it's sucking energy that's going to decrease motivation it's going to decrease yeah. your attitude which then goes and affects uh, everybody else that you're around yeah so so yeah you're focusing on what's most
1: important yeah so yeah and it does ripple. Affect and it affects your family yeah. you know I mean li- listen life is hard and it's I mean it, you know they call it work for a reason they don't call it vacation for a reason <laughs> Yeah. but it doesn't mean that it has to be drudgery I think it can be fun and even the challenges listen man um, when when our private equity firm was blown apart and falling apart we got welded at the heart you know I did with our board that said, Gary, would you help us kind of toe the line and just clean some of this stuff up? I mean, it was, it was crushing for all of us. But man, we would run through brick walls for each other because we've been through fire together. Right. And there's a blessing in that. I, I, I work with one CEO in particular that a year ago, things were not looking good. They, he had um, a partner fallout, some, some bad stuff was going on. And I said, listen, your management team those who stick with you um and he's in another country opening up an outpost he had moved his family to this other country i said man that management team that's with you anybody that goes through the fire and stays with you you guys will be welded together and and what's amazing is the last three quarters have been the best in their entire history, yep. and they've been in business, I think, of around 10 years, eight, 10 years. Because okay. they made it through the, the struggles together. Yeah, and, and they he learned to start entrusting the responsibility, because he was now in another country. Right. He had to do it, and, and the team like rose to the occasion, which was just an amazing thing, because you go, wow. And it was a solid company before they went through a really tough, tough spot, and now they're just they're cooking with gas and they they they're having fun together again. Yep. If you can get that team to have fun together again, <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. Um, okay, so let's get uh,
0: let's get pretty practical on a couple things. The yeah. first one is you work with CEOs, different personalities, different situations. Uh, From all of that experience, what? What are some of those traits, habits, things like that that you've seen from the
1: ones that have the opportunity to become that most the most successful? Yeah so we've actually been real purposeful in looking at uh, the the CEOs that my partner works with as well as what, what I work with and the ones that are attracted so here are the traits and the commonalities. Absolutely. One, first of all they're coachable and how do you know if somebody's coachable? Usually, within probably 90 seconds, and, and that's almost, it happens frequently, the, the CEO will say when I meet them for lunch or whatever, they're like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, sir, they actually do. Yeah, they wouldn't <laughs> be in that spot if they didn't. <laughs> they're doing a pretty good job. But they start with, I don't know what I'm doing. So they've got humility. If you said, hey, what are you most proud of? Of your company culture is the first thing that they'll say okay it's amazing they are others focused Um, then some other things that we look at so they're they're lifetime learners so you said you listen to a lot of podcasts which is what you do these guys are podcast listeners they're voracious readers most of them are just insatiable readers they are most of them are involved with other Peer-to-peer groups, whether it be Vistage, EO, YPO, etc. Um, most of them are very big in wellness and even fitness, which is really interesting. So okay. they're um, they've had athletics typically in in their life. They may not necessarily be an all-star, you know, wide receiver now or anything, but but whether them you know they're doing yoga or whatever, but they're they're into like. I want to take care of this body and what I've been given. And then another characteristic is um, not all of them, but a lot of them have something, uh, an element of personalization and personal expression, whether they have a boat, they race motorcycles on the weekends, they customize cars or they collect this this or that. But there's something that is like a little bit different. You know, one guy has a whole bunch of different kind of glasses you know like that's kind of his thing um but that's those are some of the the things and they usually get stuck and they're like man um we're stuck in this one area you know or it feels like it's getting hard in this area it's not as fun anymore it feels like a job and yet and one guy I asked him. I said, "Why have you been working with my partner for five years?" When my partner started the company, he said, "Well, I was running two companies, so he had. Now he's running three at the same time, and they're all none of them are even remotely connected, and they're all decent sized businesses." But he said, "At that time, he said all roads were leading to me. I felt like I was being crushed underneath the weight of my own company." Um, He was a logjam. He was a logjam, and he said, man, I can't imagine being on vacation more than a week because this these things are going down. Yeah. And he said, if there was a way that I could have just cut and run, I would have. But he was financially bound to all of this stuff. And he just felt like he was suffocating. Okay. And um, so I said, so what happened? he said, I, I found Robert. He was specifically, he had read the book Scaling Up or he had listened to the audiobook book okay. Scaling Up. Um, didn't know Robert, but found him, uh, from the web and said, um, I need your help. He said 18 months into this gig, um, his, his mother fell ill and he had to extricate himself from both of the businesses for six weeks. Okay. And he said, what was amazing is he said, because of the stuff that we had started implementing, he said, both of my businesses continued to grow without me. And he said, I knew I was free. Mm -hmm. And he said, man, I have been so afraid of ever going back to that. And then he added another business and he's still (laughs) using all this stuff. And he wants to be super proficient in all of these things. So, Um, Clockwork by Mike Michalowicz
0: is another good one on that topic of if you're the keystone of your business and everything stops with you, then that's a a recipe for disaster because something comes up like that and you have to step away or even if you just want to get away for a week with family... If you're the keystone, you're not able to do that.
1: It's, it's a prison. Right. Yeah.
0: And, and it's yeah. self-created. It's a yeah. self-created prison, right? You put yeah. your You built the business to surround it where everything comes to you and right. it funnels to you. So building something to where it can run without a leader necessarily having to make the day-to-day decisions can lead to
1: long-term success. Yeah, listen, I understand how you get there, ego, (laughs) and the need to be needed. Okay, yeah. I think that that drives a lot of it. But man, when you understand that there's freedom, and you can actually have control in the middle of that freedom by extricating yourself. So one of my CEOs that I was working with, I was with him yesterday, and we did a two day offsite with this team in June. And um, we went through the Thrive, Thrive Wither. And, and we have a thing called um, a function accountability chart. Like, if you're starting a business, so you know what this is like, you have all these functions marketing, sales, accounts payable, blah, blah, blah. And somebody's got a name in those charts. Yeah. As you're starting it, your name's in every <laughs> right. one of them. Yep. The functions are are there and have to be done. But where you become free is when you start having other people's names in those boxes by those things. And then you get to pick and choose, like, what are the things that you are best at? And then as as a company grows, you may have to even abdicate those things because they need you to lead.
0: Yeah. Okay. So. Yep. So, so we talked about different traits, Um, for people that are in the process of of building their careers as leaders or they're in their leadership position and they feel like the the wheels are spinning, what are some of those things that people can do to develop themselves as leaders? Because it's not all natural, right? A lot of it is learned and developed. So what are some of those
1: things that they can do? Well, I would say number one is find a group of people okay. that you can yeah. associate with, whether it be a mastermind group, a Vistage, or whatever. Surrounding yourself with good people, you can learn from. Yeah, and not all of those have to be paid. You know, I know you can pay 1500 to 2500 bucks a month to be a part of those groups, or more, um, but I'm in some that are not paid, where, you know, I just find... But be purposeful about those kind of people, like who and the kind of character... What are the kind of things that you want to learn from and that you can contribute to? But I would also say whether you have a paid coach or somebody, having a board is important, an advisory board as you're growing your company. But even those can be kind of disastrous. Like if you're not picking them right or if you're just picking somebody because they've got money or whatever, that can be really disastrous but have somebody on the outside of the mind blender that can actually help and and that has the courage to call a spade a spade because they're not beholden to you for a paycheck or for benefits right um yeah a coach gets paid but it, they have more than one you know so it's like they can have more freedom to be able to say man I don't I think you're out to lunch on this or why are you doing that yeah. um, because other people inside the organization may be asking that question or wondering but if, even if they did ask the question sometimes the CEO can't receive it because like yeah but you're just so-and-so and you came from such-and-such yeah right right so okay. I, I would say that's that's number one thing and I, I'd also say Dive into stuff and learn podcasts. I mean, TED, TED Talks are great. Yeah. Find the, the, the stuff that makes you come alive that you want to learn more about. Dive into it. We have access to all kind all kinds of yeah. knowledge now. Now more than ever. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. Okay, perfect. All right, I want to pivot to the, the final part of this and get a little bit more philosophical. Yeah. Um, so we've got a few questions here at the end. So the first one... Uh, I do this all the time. Show is called Success Defined. I want to know what is Gary's definition of success. Oh, that's a
1: that's a deep question. Um, so, um, a long time ago, so I believe in core purpose. Like, and I I read a book a long time ago called Purpose Driven Life uh, by uh, Warren, I think. Um, but it made me go. So what what really does matter? And for me, I've got a really simple core purpose, and that is I want to make a positive difference in the lives of others, period. And so my question to my wife and my kids and anybody else is like, am I making a positive difference? And if I'm not, then I'm failing. It has nothing to do with bank accounts. I've seen bank accounts rise, and I've seen them obliterated right. and that and yet and that makes you feel like it made me feel like a lack of success when, when that but at the end of the day we don't go to our graves with uh, a, a plus or minus on our bank accounts <laughs> like that that isn't the definition you know did we make a difference you know and um, you know for me personally I want to um i want to walk humbly with my god and i want to uh, he's the creator of this universe he's the one that created me i want to get to know him i want to make him known but i want to make him known not necessarily because of everything i'm saying but i i want to be a reflection of that so Yeah. yeah no that's interesting um okay
0: second one is what are some things that you do in your life that allows you to maintain a focus or prioritization on what's most important
1: to you? Okay, good, that's a good one. So every year I do, I I review a a career goals. Okay. What's important for me, you know, everything from the kind of place I wanna live, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So I do that. Um, Taking care of this body is really important to me because I'm not getting any younger, none of us are so um and i also know that i need an endorphin rush so um making workouts a priority is a big deal and what i'm putting into my body is a big deal not these vessels are not to be worshiped they are just places they're 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 places where we can um they're earth suits and I wanna make it last as long as I can. Okay. And I wanna take care of it. So those are the kind of things that, that I do. But um, I also went through an exercise recently. So there's a great book I had just finished recently called Your Oxygen Mask First. And it's really for CEOs. Lots of, lots. Of, there's a like a hundred page workbook on, on that goes with it as okay. well. But one of the questions was, You've just in, inherited $50 million, and I know a couple people that inherited $80 million and $330 million. Okay. And in both cases, they, it, it crushed them in many, many ways. But here are the caveats to win the $50 million or inherit and, and obtain that. One is you have to uh, be viably employed for 30 hours a week. The second one is you have, to have main, you have to maintain a healthy like life satisfaction score of 8 out of 10. And if it dips below 8, you lose the, the money. <laughs> and, and then there was another question that came on and said, you've been given one year to live, yet you still got to work. What would you do? And so for me, I, I went back to that and I said, I wouldn't move to Tahiti. I wouldn't own a smoothie stand on uh, on a beach, renting surfboards, which I thought I w- w- would want to do at one point. But actually, I'd be in Charlotte, North Carolina. I love this place. Is it perfect? No. But it's like home. And I want to pour into other ripple makers. I, you know, 10 to 12 guys in particular. I, I'm not opposed to working with women, but I think that there's something about a guy working with a guy um, okay. and um, and it also minimizes a lot of drama you know I'm married and I've, I've been married for 36 years or for 35 years plus I want to stay married <laughs> to that same woman so I'm kind of careful about that but I, that's what I want to do I want to pour into these other guys if I only had one more year left I wanna make a difference in their lives because they make difference in, in the yeah. lives of many other people and this community that, that we live in. Yeah.
0: Yeah, well, that's great. And you your whole thing was impact, right? You want to have positive yeah. impact, positive influence, and you're doing that not only by impacting those people, but the people that they're impacting as well. Yes. So you've said ripple effect a few times and that's your ripple effect. Yes. People you're never going to meet are being positively affected by what you're doing to help their leaders.
1: People that move into Charlotte today are being positively impacted by guys like Humicole. Yep. Even if they never meet, it doesn't it They doesn't don't matter. even know who that heck Humicole is. Right. Right. And yet things that he did that drove him, and he's not a perfect man, none of us are. Okay. But I admire that and so that's what I wanna do. Yeah. Well, that's a great answer. Um, okay two more here
0: Yeah. Uh, second to last one if you had the power to change any one thing that you see within mm-hmm. your life personally, professionally out in the community, whatever it is what, what is that one thing that you would want to change?
1: I would say the one thing that I would do differently is I would have paid more attention to my wife's intuition okay interesting can you go deeper on that? Yeah, because I would discount her thoughts and opinions on stuff because I'm like, well, you're not in business or you're not in this thing or whatever. But there's something to, at least how my wife, and I think in women in general, I think they are, are in general, more perceptive to character and those kind of things. She saw things in people and even partners Of mind that I didn't see because I was putting together my checklist of all this logic. No, this is how how it fits perfectly. But she could see this, and I discounted that. And I think to my own um, detriment at times. Okay.
0: Yeah. All right. Final one now. You and I are sitting here three years from now, just having a conversation. Mm -hmm. What happened in that three-year period to where you can look back and say that was a
1: successful three years in my life? Mm. Uh, I would say that um, I continued on my quest to make positive impact in the lives of others. That I was purposeful in the 10 to 12 CEOs at any given time that I was pouring my life into. And that my family didn't feel neglected or less of a priority in doing so.
0: Thank you so much. Is there anything else that you want to to leave the listeners or viewers with? No, I can't think of anything. Okay. Then uh, where can, and we can put this in the show notes, but where do you want people to go if they have a question for you, if they want yeah. to follow you, connect with you, anything like that?
1: LinkedIn is probably the fastest uh, way. All of my contact information is there. They can go to our website, insightcxo.com too, but... Fastest connection to me is probably LinkedIn, and um, I I try to be pretty diligent. If somebody's messaging me or calling me or whatever, I I try to make sure that I get back with them. So, well, perfect. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, man. It was a great it was a time. Pleasure meeting you.